Okay, y'all. We have none other than the Dr. Joan Arvidson on as a guest today. And I am completely joyfully overwhelmed that the author of my pediatric dysphagia textbook is our guest. And to be able to share a moment of gratitude for a kind review for the book that I wrote on pediatric feeding disorder and knowing that the fairy godmother is our guest is completely overwhelming. So thank you. Thank you so very much to Melissa Davis for her kind words on the book. Michelle Dawson is by far my favorite conference and podcast presenter. And I can now honestly say she's one of my favorite authors in this book. Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric and Feeding Swallowing Disorders. Michelle was able to beautifully organize a huge amount of information regarding children with PFD and encourage therapists to confidently communicate with other professionals that are or need to be a part of the feeding team. In each chapter, she presented case studies and emphasized the need for appropriate referrals while also listing other diagnoses that would require a referral to the same type of professional. After seeing Michelle present at a conference and listening to 10 to 15 of her podcasts, I can truly hear her talking in the book saying, I love this book is a huge understatement. I adore this book and know I will constantly be reaching for it during practice. I'll not only reference it for the huge amount of information it provides, but for encouragement to refer to the appropriate professionals and asking the hard questions when being the voice for our kiddos with PFD. If you're a therapist or professional working in the world of PFD, buy this book. I promise that you won't regret it. And this will be your new favorite book. So Melissa, thank you for your amazing review of Chasing the Swallow available now on Amazon. Y'all, that wouldn't have been possible without today's guest. So without further ado, y'all hold tight because it's Dr. The Dr. Joan Arvidson. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. It is my privilege and my pleasure. And since you just said, come, we will see what comments and questions you have and what comments and questions I may have. Because anybody who knows me very well at all knows that I have lots of questions. You answers, I hope, lots of questions. And that's what keeps us learning 
keeps us doing better with our patients and our families and facilitate and make our own lives the best possible. So when Aaron and I first started this journey, Aaron, how many years ago? Four, five? Four years ago. We met five years ago. Okay. So four years ago when we started this, our goal was to make a safe space so that people could ask hard questions and so that we could expedite research to practice because we wanted to research to practice and practice to research is a continuum, right? And it goes back and forth. But we do like to kind of start at the beginning with each guest. Can you tell us what made you want to be a speech pathologist and then How did you get into Pete's dysphagia? Because when we spoke, it felt like it just kind of, it was happenstance that it, you got into the Pete's world. Well, I don't think we have a whole day. So (laughs) (laughs) my story is long because I'm, have had a good many years to live, but let's see if I can do this in a fairly concise way. I started at the University of Wisconsin many years ago in medical technology. And then as I was taking a physiology course, I learned a lot, but I didn't find it easy to pith the frogs or reach into the cage for the rabbits, but I did that. And then I got to inorganic chemistry as a sophomore. And I was valedictorian in my high school class. I had a scholarship to keep and I was flunking inorganic chemistry at midterm. So I needed to get a tutor. And I was the head waitress at Liz Waters Dormitory where we were serving evening meals and Sunday noon meals. So there were bus boys and quite a number of other people who worked there as well. And when I inquired about the need for a tutor, people said, well, I think that Pete Arvidsson is a graduate student in chemistry. And sure enough, his major was organic chemistry, but he obviously knew inorganic chemistry. And I had a few sessions, and I must have aced the final because I got to be in the course. And then I knew him for a while before we ended up sharing the same last name, but we won't go there at this point. And then I went home for Christmas to spend some time with my family. And my mother, who was an elementary school teacher, said, we were talking about this, and she said, you know, there is a speech correctionist. Now, mind you, I might as well tell you the year, probably 1960, maybe 1961, because I think I started in 59. Our title was speech correctionist. Did you two know that historically? Well, that's what it was. And she comes to my school once a week and works with a child who has a hearing impairment and another one who had fluency or language problems. So I took an introductory course in communication disorders and I was hooked. And that's what led me into speech pathology. And then I had Arnie Aronson, who is a giant in the neurology field in speech pathology for my first neurology course. And then my focus was with adults with neurologic communication disorders for a long time. My master's degree had some funding with the VA system. So my first job was at St. Barnabas Hospital for Chronic Diseases in the Bronx when they were doing cryosurgery for Parkinsonism just before they developed um, the medications that then became used. So I... I mean, we moved to, my husband was in General Theological Seminary. He got a PhD in inorganic chemistry and then went to seminary to become an Episcopal priest. And then we moved to Central Illinois, a small town called Effingham, Illinois. I did one year of public school work and I knew that was not for me. In fact, not for me because I really don't function well seeing people day after day after week after month after So that's another story, too. Both of our boys were born there. And then we went to Okinawa, Japan. And I was on staff at the U.S. Army Hospital in Okinawa. 
And this was 1972 to 1978 when the Vietnam War was still going on. And then as it was ending and there was significant reduction of forces, there were about 100,000 Americans on Okinawa when we went there. And the island is 65 miles long and about 16 miles wide at its widest, two miles at its narrowest. So anyway, we were there for six years. And I, all that time, thought, when I get back to the U.S., I need to work on an advanced degree. And the PhD was really the degree. So we got back to the U.S. and I had a job with the visiting nurse service and then did some work with adults with developmental disabilities and then with uh, hospital, St. Mary's Hospital, all the time working on a PhD but seeing patients. And then video swallow studies came in that hospital in the middle 80s. So long and short, my out-of-department minor was in administrative medicine, which was a master's degree program for physicians who were in decision-making roles in their facilities, but not to be an administrator. So I, I was able to work that out for me. Nobody had ever tried to do that as an out-of-department minor, but I knew that I was not going to be an academician. I was not going to be a base researcher. I would be in a medical setting, hopefully to be a director or leader in a speech pathology department, see patients, and maybe do some research. So as I began, and my dissertation was certainly focused with adults. You don't need to know the details about that for our purposes here. But then as I began to inquire about jobs, I'm not sure really how Dr. Linda Brodsky got in touch with me from the Children's Hospital of Buffalo. I had no intention of going to a children's hospital, even though I had been seeing some patients, including in the NICU at St. Mary's Hospital. And I went to Children's Hospital of Buffalo as Director of Speech Pathology and Audiology Dr. Brian Rogers is a developmental pediatrician, Dr. Linda Brodsky, otolaryngologist, and my medical director there. And I was overseeing speech pathology and audiology. And then I gave a short talk, 45-minute talk at ASHA in Seattle in 1989, I suppose, because I went to Buffalo in 88, uh, about feeding problems with infants with craniofacial anomalies. So I just gave three examples, a more typical. I'm not sure there is anything as a typical patient because they all write their own books and everyone has individual differences. But a flippant palate, airway, so an infant with pyroband sequence, and then an infant with neurologic-based problems in which the cleft is almost incidental. And within a couple of weeks after that meeting, I got a letter asking me to write a book from an editor with a publishing company. And I said to myself and then to others, why would anybody ask me to write a book? I have no credentials for anything. So I showed that letter to Dr. Brodsky, who was quite upfront with everything that she said and did. And she said, you can't write a book. Your writing skills aren't strong enough. But we will do this. Oh my God. So that was the <laughs> origin of the first edition of Arvidsson and Brodsky with multiple contributors, mostly from children's in Buffalo. And, you know, at that time, I think there was one other feeding team because we developed a feeding team with interest with some of the physicians and with other therapies, including psychology and OT primarily. And... There was one program in, in Cincinnati, primarily, and Dr. Colin Rudolph was the director of that program for a number of years, and that's really how I got to Wisconsin when he was then recruited to Wisconsin to build a feeding and swallowing program. They had some program, not quite as defined maybe as ours, but two. So I was 13 and a half years in 
Buffalo, and things were changing there too. The therapists and psychologists and dietitians were becoming unionized. Administration was changing. We were no longer a self-contained independent children's hospital. We were merged into a bigger hospital. So all of those things make changes as well. And so, yes, I do say when people ask me, how did you get into pediatrics? In a sense, it was by default, but maybe even more so by being open for options. So I urge that for all of us. It may not mean a geographic physical move. It may not even be a major move within a system. But if we are always keeping open for options, and in our profession, as you know, there's such a range of focuses. And I think it's better if we don't narrow too quickly when you are too young in the profession. But at the same time, we have to specialize. And it's very clear in our code of ethics that if we do not have the competencies and that can include a number of kinds of things, even though we have our C's in our profession, we should not practice unless we have the knowledge and competencies in the area in which we practice. So that makes things very challenging too, because we can't know everything about everything in all of these areas. So I have now been in pediatrics for quite a while. (laughs) For quite a while. That's amazing. Well, one of the things you spoke at ASHA when we were in Boston, it was the Boston one. You made a comment and it was off the cuff and it was just so honest. And it was about the science is changing and we have to stay current. We can't just practice how we always practice. And like, you know, there was a lot of people applauding in the room, but it made my heart skip. Because, I mean, I had peds dysphagia embedded into two courses in my overall dysphagia. And now we actually have graduate coursework that's a semester long for pediatric dysphagia, which is, it's evolving. But but I wonder if that is even the case in every program. I don't know that it is. So it's still pretty limited. And the other aspect of this is that when we are working with very young infants, maybe even in the NICU, and a lot of people want to get into the NICU, what do we know about embryology, prenatal development, neurophysiology, the airway, the gut, all of those systems? And... It isn't just about swallowing. And when we use the term dysphagia, that's not a real diagnosis. That's a term that describes a swallowing problem. And think about the babies and children that you see, and probably people who are going to listen to this. I'm not sure why somebody wants to take time to listen to this. But if you do, I will be very happy that... We have, now I lost my train of thought, that we have to always be thinking about what else might be going on in the whole picture. Because dysphagia is just swallowing. And I like to think about all the children that we see, no matter what their age and what their diagnoses are, they all have feeding problems, but they don't all have dysphagia. And I think the recent Um, paper and then the acknowledgement of a feeding disorder diagnostic code along with billing codes has actually helped to make that clearer. So swallowing is just a part. And yet we talked about how we have to make sure that we're practicing within our code of ethics. We also have to make sure we're practicing within our scope of practice. So I think about it as I have to know a whole lot about a whole lot of systems, as well as the family dynamics and how people work together and the overall global development. But then I have to practice within my scope of practice. 
And that makes it very challenging for all of us. And why don't we have more practice guidelines or protocols? There are some out there probably, but they don't really, many of them, I have to be careful here because I can't say it globally, but some of them don't have really any evidence about that role in outcomes. So we always have to be thinking what's underlying and then what's a child ready for developmentally as well and how can we facilitate and really coach parents. doesn't matter a bit what I do with a baby or child if the primary caregivers can't really follow through with it. So I sit knee to knee with parents. All of your videos show that too. You're right there guiding them. So there's a new special interest group within ASHA specifically for counseling. And I know some of the more progressive, larger universities have started embedding a counseling class into their curriculum. But just like pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders isn't in all curriculums, the counseling course isn't in all curriculums. But most of what it is that we do is guide the caregivers on this journey because it's not it's not a one and done spot. It's you could be there for a while. It's also true that more is not necessarily better, meaning more intensive therapy or more frequent sessions. How do we find the balance? And we could go into that with a lot of different kinds of examples, but I think everybody can think about examples that apply to one's own practice. But those are big questions. Younger clinicians, when they're overwhelmed by meeting productivity demands, may compromise on the frequency or duration of therapy because they haven't had the proper formal education or mentorship to know that more isn't necessarily, or recognize that there's a time and a place for the speech pathologist, but when do we need to pull in OT or when do they really need to see GI or ENT? And it's not just a silo clinician role and responsibility. It's truly a team. And I think it's a team even for people who are in private practice. Because that team may be different from mine when I am in a children's hospital, primarily seeing outpatients in terms of where my own practice is. And I still see patients every week. So we have to think about that as well. Whatever setting we are in, we have to figure out how a team can actually be helpful. And I will tell you that I have had parents come up to me sometimes two years after I've seen a child once or twice, and I don't even really remember them. But they remind me about how I, what I did when I met them. And some of them will actually say to me, Dr. Arvidson, you saved my baby. And I say, what? I saw him. We watched him eat. I talked to you. And... It seemed like it was better for him to go to GI or to neurology than for doing a video swallow study, for instance. Yes, you sent me to that right person and the kid had a brain tumor or the kid had GI problems or something. So it is not unexpected that the best thing we can do is to see that the child and the family get to the team or the people who can really meet their needs. And they might get to us first. And speech pathologists are good listeners. And often there's good trust built up, and that's beautiful. But that also gives us the opportunity to assure that people get what they really need to the best that we can possibly do it. And I'm going to add one other thing here right now because I think it's so important. We could get over-focused on the mouth and the swallowing. And when we 
do that, then we're not as aware of how the other systems are interrelating. And then our recommendations, our follow-up may not be quite meeting the best possible needs. So we have to think about all of those things as well. And my mind's just rambling on here, just probably like my talking is, so that we could talk about so many things in so many different ways. But really being so tuned in to what parents are telling us. And sometimes when people come in and say, you say, how are you today? And the person says, I'm fine. But you really aren't, are you? I'm here to listen <laughs> you want, and some want that and some don't, but just that acknowledgement. And one of the questions, and maybe you asked this question too, it's actually a part of our routine. And it's basically to start the session with something similar to, and what matters most to you today? Some people understand that phrase. Some people just need to be, what are you most concerned about? Or what do you really want to work on today? Or something like that. Because the parent may have a whole different idea than what I thought was going to be the situation before the they came into the clinic room. You found that too, haven't you? And then we have to help to meld what we are aware as professionally, what some of the needs are, but how that can fit into the family. And the World Health Organization has a series of uh, definitions or guidelines of, of health, disability, and impairment. And I often put this up on a slide when I'm giving an extensive kind of talk. And the key thing that I take away from that is what they say is to focus on the function and not on the impairment. And we, I believe, in most instances, are pretty much impairment-focused. But what can the child do? Can the child have any kind of a snack at school, if you've got that age child? Can the family take the baby or child with them to go out to dinner or go to a family gathering or something? And maybe it's not so important that every kid needs to learn to chew tough food. Thank you. And well with being more efficient and getting some opportunities to do the very best they can. But we have these guidelines. We have these developmental milestones. And I think sometimes we get too focused and don't keep looking at the child. But where is this child developmentally? Why can't my child chew regular table food? He's three years old, but he doesn't walk. He has spastic quadriplegia. He has cognitive and language delays. He has hypotonia or hypertonia maybe. So developmentally, he's not going to be able to chew hard meat. <laughs> and maybe he doesn't need to. Now, I'm overgeneralizing with some of these things, and then our listeners can take it and relate it to their own situations or say, that Arvidsson, I think she just doesn't know what she's talking about. It's okay. They, some people don't think I know what I'm talking about, including my own children. And, you know, they're the reason I sneeze, pee, and giggle farts. So, like, there is that. Well, <laughs> and I think, too, a lot of our job is understanding. Because we're the ones who understand at a deep level or try to as deep as we can feeding and swallowing. And so some of these parents just want to feel understood. And so when a family comes to us and feeding is not going the way that they wanted it to go, part of our job is to find and help them find the joy in it again of what they are doing, like you said. Because when they're coming to someone that's supposed to understand, and again, it's what they're not doing, we're, our job is to show you look at this mealtime that you're having and look at what he, he or she is doing and look at what you're doing to respond to their needs. And this is why they've made progress. Like sometimes our job is to just say, this is what you're doing, right? We're going to work on all these other things, but here is where you can find the joy that maybe was lost for a while because you were being told that they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. 
affirmations. And we cannot force another person to eat. And too much when we try to get people, try to get children, even some infants, if you're trying to get in their mouth and they hate it, they're fussing, they're crying, it's stressful. What are we doing? We are making them aversive to oral feeding. And so acceptance at whatever level underlies all of the rest of the function. And if we don't get acceptance, in other words, even an example would be just as the child open his mouth as the spoon approaches, and then here comes the spoon. If his lips are tightly closed and you can't get in there, you can't force in there because we then impose a feeding aversion. So tubes can be tools. Tubes can go in, tubes can come out. They are tools. If that's the situation about nutrition and hydration, because we can't jeopardize that. So, I mean, it is true, the listening, the watching, the observing. And I will often say to parents, and sometimes it's with a very young infant, sometimes it's with a much older kid. But I will say, as we're working on something, you're probably thinking, this is pretty simple. Why didn't I think of it myself? It is simple, but it is not intuitive. And you are doing what is intuitive. So we'll build on that and shift things just a little bit. For instance, when the parent doesn't realizing doesn't realize that they're asking a child for permission, when they say, it's time to get in your high chair, okay? Well, you put the okay at the end, and now they're asking permission. Therapists do it. Parents do it. They don't even realize they're doing it. So sometimes we have to just point out, again, intuitively, that makes sense. Or with um, something else when they say, are you ready to eat? And the child, who may not talk at all, but gives a very definite no answer, what do they do? They put the child in the chair anyway, right? And so there goes the, so you don't respect me. That's really what it is. It's a matter of how do we respect and facilitate the best possible quality and efficiency and function in all of these children. And I think it holds at the other end of the age spectrum as well. It actually does. The principles do. Thank you so, so much. I have to sneak out. I'm so sad to miss the rest of this, but I've enjoyed this so much and I'll listen to the rest of it. And please keep in touch. I wish you well in your new adventure. Thank you you so much. Y'all have fun talking. Happy birthday, birthday, honey. (laughs) So folks, if you caught that, it is Erin's birthday tomorrow. And the one and only Sam is sneaking her out tonight, Samantha, but we call her Sam, for a Manny Petty girls night. (laughs) So yes. Good for them. Good for them. Yes. And Sam has a newborn. So this is high priorities that she's going out without the couple of weaker. (laughs) But one of the pieces that Aaron has taken advanced courses on is actually trauma-informed care and child-led therapy from like a neurodiversity affirming perspective. And she does speak ever so highly about the different aspects of relationship building and with the child and the relationship between the child and mealtime, the relationship between the caregiver and the child, the relationship between the caregiver and the food. And something that as I've gotten older, and I don't think I would have been able to process this when I was a younger clinician, but a caregiver's relationship around mealtime and the trauma that the caregivers are coming to the table, that plays such a profound effect on the outcomes of each individual session, as well as the long-term outcomes for the child. Yes, it does. And it seems as though, as we observe families, 
And we have to observe the whole family, just as you've said, because it's a unit and maybe even a broader unit. But that, in effect, the most stressful aspect of having a child, caring for a child who has some specific needs or disabilities, it's the feeding. If you can't feed your child, it is so traumatic to the caregivers. And the term that we've used so often and is still used, I think, way too often, but it is changing some. And that's the term failure to thrive. When children are not gaining weight adequately when they are not having their nutrition needs met. What do we see in medical charts and what do people say? Failure to thrive. And I have had parents, and I'm sure some of the rest of you have too, who will say to me, if one more person says my child is failure to thrive, I just want to hit them because it makes me feel like such a failure as a parent. And a number of years ago, there's a book on um, trans, transdisciplinary nutrition. No, that's not quite it. And I probably won't remember it right now. But a number of years ago, some pediatricians who did a good job about writing a book on pediatric nutrition, and they talked about how, let's just call it undernutrition, malnutrition in the most severe cases, but undernutrition or maybe slow weight gain, something that is actually more descriptive than failure to thrive anyway. And when I think about describing findings, whether it's clinical findings or instrumental swallow findings, we need to be able to use terms that are descriptive for findings. And then we use our other terms for interpretation. But if I hear that a child is failure to thrive, I don't really know what that means. If I hear that a child is undernutrition or is gaining weight slowly, you know, you have some picture about that. And I think we all need to be striving to help to change terminology that is very common in the professional medical, psychological, speech pathology language and parents so that we all understand each other and that it's clear when I use a term that you can picture what it is that's happening. And that's really critical in terms of research aspects, whether we're trying to do research to show outcomes from some kind of an intervention or show changes in pulmonary function, for instance, if a child has been at risk for aspiration or in timing and coordination, we need to be using terms that are truly descriptive. I don't know what it means if somebody says to me, they had flash penetration on a swallow study. What's flash? But if you tell me that barium contrast was seen on the underside of the superior part of the epiglottis and cleared upon completion of the swallow in an infant who's taking sequential swallows, for instance, I can picture that. And then you have some better way of thinking about not only how you describe it, frequency, how much, how little, and then how does that fit into the whole picture for clinical decision-making, as well as what kind of um, variables do we set up if we are looking at it in a research way. So, you know, I have never done basic research, but I'm always thinking in research ways, and I do a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes writing, editing, and those sorts of things. So I'm always thinking about that. So, Michelle, what comments do you have in relation to what I've just said? My first thought is I would appreciate it if you would move to Columbia and come complete the instrumental swallow exams at our local hospital. (laughs) So (laughs) there is a systematic breakdown for infants along the care line. And that is something that I see. And when you're describing the 
depth of terminology, I don't see that utilized. And I go back to when we're engaging within full practice within our scope of practice, what are the policy and procedures for successful training so that the individuals that are administering these assessments, the individuals that are even down to physicians that are giving out a diagnosis of FTT, to me, failure to thrive is something's wrong and we don't know what's wrong yet. But if a physician is utilizing that as their diagnostic criterion, and then they're just sending them to speech, well, there's so many other team players. I mean, what am I supposed to do with the diagnosis of FTT? And when I get that, I just tell the families, that's a fancy way of saying we haven't figured it out yet, but you hold tight because we're going to get you to the right people. And it's always funny because case in point, I had a new eval on, it's Friday. They came to me on a Wednesday afternoon and it was a six month old with Down syndrome and she's underweight exclusively breastfeeding, but they work, they attend at a private practice where the physicians change every single time. So for the last six months, this at-risk infant has not seen the same pediatrician every single appointment. So there's no continuity in the medical practice. You have a child at risk with a family whose literacy level may not be the same as my own, and we are undernourished, right? But that is unfortunately the bread and butter for most early intervention or private practice speech pathologists. Unless we're attached to a hospital, we don't even have quick access to the physicians to be able to relay those concerns over. And where do I start? Personally, I start with, you know, contacting the doctor's office after consent has been signed. Hey, can we make a referral here? For that one specific child, my next step was let's consider a second opinion from a pediatrician's office where you're going to be followed by the same doctor every single time. Jubaka agrees with this recommendation. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, in truth, I did refer them to my son's pediatrician, but I swapped over to my pediatrician or our boy's pediatrician because of her exceptional continuity of care. I wanted what was best for my preemie born with and who struggled with hearing loss and had to go through speech therapy. I was on the receiving end also as a, as a caregiver, not just as a practitioner. This takes me back all the way to the beginning as a clinician when we come out of grad school dewy-eyed with this impression that the NICU is going to resolve all known diagnoses. That baby's going to come out of the NICU and they're going to know what's going on. And it's my job just to go in and fix their swallow. And how wrong was I in those naive assumptions, right? But how do we instill hope in the future generations of speech pathologists that they can be equipped to do this, to to help be problem solvers, to help guide and coach without totally annihilating that dewy-eyed, joyful bubble. <laughs> I just answered your question with a lot of questions. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I think that's a very healthy approach, though, because questions lead to more questions. And within the questions, you also had some description. So, you are asking the questions on the basis of some personal insights and also some observation of child and family. And another area that we have not yet talked about in terms of family and the, all those units is the cultural differences and how important it is that we respect the cultural differences, even in how transition feeding is introduced, for example, so that when a mom chews food partially and then puts it into her nine-month, 15-month-old child, you know, a graduate student, and I think of this from many years ago, went, ah! <laughs> does not matter what you see or hear, you maintain a neutral Face Composure. Because that's a cultural way that those 
food textures are introduced and they may not have blenders. They may not want to blend. They may, I mean, there are so many other factors that come into play. So always asking my two favorite four-letter words in English are what else? You know, what else do I need to think about? That's part of what you were suggesting in your last comments. What else could we try? Or what else shouldn't I try? Because of what we are seeing and what you are getting, not only from what people tell you, but also from the body language. You know, most of the children that I see can't tell me how they feel. So if they have esophagitis or some discomfort, EOE, EOE, eosinophilic esophagitis, in case some of you have still not heard of that term, and who knows who listens to this, but they can't tell us. So if they are fussing and crying, and sometimes even a very young infant, and I can give you lots of examples, but, you know, everyone is a little bit different. An infant that I saw just a couple few weeks ago, and I thought she was going to do really well with breastfeeding and some bottle supplement. And then the parents within a day, she's just not doing this regularly. We can get maybe one food in and she's just crying and she's screaming. And I said, there's something else going on because that's not what you get if it's just a timing problem about sucking and swallowing and breathing. So my first thought is always, what's the airway? Airway status. So we got her to ENT and I got her worked in very quickly, having called her pediatrician who said, yes, please facilitate that. And her larynx looked very refluxy. She did not have a laryngeal cleft, obvious. I mean, you can't diagnose a laryngeal cleft just by clinical scoping. You have to do that in the OR under sedation. But she did not have those kinds of signs. So she was put on some reflux medication and some, I think they even suggested possibly not just plain breast milk, but some added formula or something. And I have not seen her since, so she must be doing okay. But if you don't get to the underlying problem to the best we possibly can, we are just treating signs and symptoms. And usually that doesn't work effectively. I explain it to my families. Have you ever had food poisoning? And inevitably, somebody somewhere has had a food poisoning experience, right? So you had a negative sensory experience with that food. We had emesis. We had, as my eight-year-old says, we had the poos, right? Also, my eight-year-old will sing to his poos. So when you're walking by the guest bathroom, you can hear him singing and you know exactly what he is doing. But you had a negative sensory experience because of a medical etiology, food poisoning, and now you have made the behavioral choice of, I don't want to eat this. I am electing to avoid this. So medical drives the sensory, drives the behavior. And that's how I have translated what their non-speaking child is going through. And that has you see it click in caregivers, right? They're like, okay, I thought they were just being bad or I thought they were being difficult or my pediatrician said they're just being ornery. And I'm like- Or it's well, just I mean, behavior. You know, it's just yes, behavior. And it's, Food it's just behavior. And I, I'm like, no, no, it's not. I, can we shout that one from the mountaintops? It's not just behavior. There is- Our job, in my opinion, is to walk alongside the patient and the caregivers to help them get to that point of healing. Because until that child is at the point of healing, I can be the best feeding therapist that I can be, but my suggestions, my strategies will not come to fruition because the child's not there yet. That baby's not ready to engage in a tapered weaning protocol or engage in child-led messy play. I mean, they're just, we're not prepared and that's okay. But to borrow Marsha Dunkline's world of giving permission, we have to give ourselves permission first. 
right? Just like like the child has to give permission. Yes. Oh my gosh. All the soapboxes that you and I are politely refraining from while gesturing with our hands. Yes. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, I do get asked, and let me preface this. Folks, you know that I've encouraged everybody to go ahead and put Boston 2023 on your agenda, right? But I have the honor this year of serving as topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorder for ASHA. We have been planning since ASHA wrapped up in New Orleans last year, right? But one of the things that we're working towards is making sure that we're bringing in guest speakers to specifically talk about the efficacy of treatment for non-speech oral motor exercise, TOTS, um, uh, electro... Vital stim or electro... Electrostimulation. Yes. Um, why we don't electrocute the tiny humans is um, how I um, translate that. But um, also, let's take it a step further. When we engage in um, behavioral interventions that takes the autonomy and the control away from the child, we we can be causing harm. So I, I do ask, come to ASHA and let the greats, share in their wisdom because we need to hear this and then take that leap of faith that the research is there to support other avenues and other therapeutic interventions. But that's a that's a long distance plug. I'm plugging away for several months from now, but it will also be here before we know it because that's the way time goes by. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> because children change even with sort of the worst possible diagnosis, most of them, not all, but most of them make some gains. They get better. But if we push them too hard, we are going to even slow down farther what gains they can make. And it's becoming clearer. I can't cite a research study on this, but When infants have been in the NICU, sleep is very important. And I just heard a lecture from a very fine physician in the Netherlands. It was a webinar that I sat in on. And he was talking about sleep and the importance of sleep in the NICU and also all the way through our lives, because it also um, helps to rejuvenate our immune systems, some things that I had not really thought about. And... For very young infants, if we are interrupting what in some ways is described as very active sleep, we then actually make things more difficult for them. So we have to think about the timing of the direct interactions with infants, and we have to think about what effects there may be If, oh, it's time now, we should see if that infant will begin to rouse. And or, on the other hand, maybe it looked like the child was rousing, but should have been left for a little bit longer. And I don't have the specifics about this, but it's certainly making me think in an added dimension with all of these things as well. But what I really wanted to get at at this point is that those infants who have had like cardiac surgery, those children who have had esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistula, and they've had surgical procedures, and they've had them at very young ages, the best we know is that they remember those long after the immediacy of the pain, the discomfort, the suctioning, the, all those other things have occurred. And So when the physicians say, well, everything's squared away, everything's stable, now they can eat. Well, they don't want to eat. They're not ready to eat because we have to think about where they've been and where they are at this time so that acceptance without stress, and it may seem very slow progress, but I am amazed at how many people even people from a variety of cultures know the Aesop's fable, the hare and the tortoise. 
Do you know it? Who won the race? Slow and steady. Steady. Function. Don't train them off track. Because now you have a habit to undo. And that, I think, also fits in with some of the things we know about neuroplasticity. So that sensory motor, physiologic learning, and the whole neural processing and those processes, you see, if we train off task, then it's harder to get back on task. What happens to a tennis player if she doesn't learn to serve well to start with? It's tough to change. Swimmers, runners, golfers. I mean, you can think of a lot of illustration in sports. It's the art of implementation science. When when you are making a change, you make it in, there's that old phrase, six degrees of change, or it, but it's not. It's one degree of change and then reassessing constantly, did the strategy, did this approach, what was the outcomes? But you have to systematically reassess the work that's being done. And part of that if we truly lean into the art of implementation science, if we sit back and look at what are the nonverbals that this child, this infant, this toddler is giving me, also what are the nonverbals that the caregiver is giving me, but then take it a whole nother layer to pull in the research from Dr. Juliana Woods with the family guided routines-based intervention. Are we meeting these caregivers at their level of need with respect to Maslow's scale of hierarchical need? Where are they there? And whether the there be physically in a NICU or physically in a PICU or in your private practice or in a double wide trailer at home on a dirt floor. I have done therapy in the most creative of places with the least of physical supports because home health, right? That's you. I have the joy of literally physically meeting them in the there, but how do we, then build that relationship to understand where that caregiver is in a financial, in a grief cycle, in a trauma cycle. Also, where are they celebrating these little wins? Because, I mean, it's all of that information that pulls in. I see on social media where people want to... um, become feeding therapists or they tote themselves as feeding specialists. And when they don't have alphabet soup attached to their name, such as the BCSS or anything like this. And this makes me concerned because according to the code of ethics, we can't call ourselves a specialist unless we actually have that advanced credentials. So I do worry about that. And then I worry about if you're calling yourself these things and you're presenting yourself in this light on social media, there are caregivers that are having a cup less than full that are going to hang on to the information and or misinformation that you are presenting and run with it. And social media is a whole nother conversation, but I just, so much of what we do, we lead from our heart when it comes to feeding and swallowing because it's such an intimate act but we've got to be able to see the big picture and tie in all of those little pieces together. It's so cool. I love what we do. We really have the best job. And I do get thrown up on occasionally. And I did come home from work one day last week and I had another mother's express breast milk because I put them up to burp and it just caught me. (laughs) I was was a little odiferous there for a day. (laughs) I want to make one comment here about how we make changes. And yes, we'd like techniques, we'd like programs underlying whatever it is that we do. If we always have in mind to change in one dimension at a time in very small steps, then we can always, I use the term nail the barrier. But, and and essentially, I think we change things in the three T's in English. 
taste, texture, and temperature. Those are kind of the variables that we change. But if I change a food in taste and texture at the same time, and there's a problem, could be most anything, then I don't know, was it the taste or was it the texture? Did I give too big an amount on the spoon? So every time you do something new, it needs to be minuscule, barely a taste maybe to the tongue. And you've got to make sure that if you're changing it to make it slightly thicker or slightly thinner, well, then make sure it's the same taste that the kid is used to. And this goes from babies to older kids. So that's a fundamental principle. Acceptance without stress. Figure out what's appropriate developmentally and what's going on with the child in terms of the global diagnoses and etiologies. And then as you do make changes, make them in one dimension at a time in very small steps. And what might seem like a small step to us could be like seven steps to the kid. And then amazing things happen, as long as you don't push too hard too fast. And as you said, pay attention to the family dynamics, the culture, the levels of understanding, but always with the child as the uppermost consideration in terms of safety and well-being, etc. That. Sort of a little summary, maybe. This was amazing. Thank you. I am so incredibly grateful. The profound impact that your work has had on me is... Thank you. Please know that you have had that on generations of clinicians and untold countless lives. So um, I I know you've never, um, never done a podcast before. So the fact that you took a gamble on a little old thing from White Oak, Virginia, who um, uh, grew up and is from a long proud line of um, bootleggers, preachers, police officers, and nurses. And as my daddy said, we would liquor you up, pick you up, patch you up, and put you back out. Um, I am... <laughs> I love <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we're we're a beautiful mess. That's the God's honest truth. So we all keep at it together and know that we have support from one another. And we take it one day at a time and we do the best we possibly can. And remember, we have no control over what somebody else does. That's an important thing to remember, too. So we facilitate, we affirm, we, again, just do the best we can and then let go. But we keep at it one day at a time. Thank you very much. This has been a real privilege. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, Folks, if you are listening and this has stirred your heartstrings, um, I'm going to give you a call to action. I would appreciate it. If you would volunteer of your time, of your talents, as my grandma says, a little bit of your love money, um, please go check out Feeding Matters. Please go check out uh, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders. Please go check out Dysphagia Outreach Project. Please go check out Dysphagia Research Society. All of those are incredibly worthy endeavors, and I'm sure that there's something I have forgotten in this moment. But those are the ones and that come I to would mind. Add that- with the feeding matters too, so much for families as well as for clinicians. I was on the original board, the original getting this that whole organization started and still not quite to the same level or degree, but still very actively involved with feeding matters. So, yes. And um, there are a number of people who have some very good information that's available. But do be cautious about the social media. There's a lot of very, very helpful. But as with everything, we have to really sort. So thanks. (laughs) Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? 
The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Bye.